you know, sometimes church is just like a breath of fresh air, you know? You've gone through all the stuff you've done all week long, and you've been busy and just being alive. And then you get to come to church, and things happen and go on, and it just, it just sort of, you just, I don't know, it's, it's a, yeah, life's pretty good, you know? Life's pretty good. God's been good to me. That's all right. Pretty much we had a good vacation Bible school this week. As pastor, my role in vacation Bible school is just a little bit different from my role anywhere else. Uh, as, as one of the uh, youth said at middle school camp, that uh, Laura is the boss at middle school camp and that I answer to her. And in vacation Bible school, it's the same thing. She's the boss and Barry and I answer to Laura. And she tells us what we need to do and don't need to do. And so I don't have to be in the thick of everything. I can just lean back for a change and watch. And I like that. I mean, I had my little things to do, you know. But mostly, I'm here if, if you know, the world catches on fire. It's my job to put it out. And, uh, and just to hang around and, and, and be here. And so I sat back in the sound booth during some of the services and just watched. And there were two things that happened this week that helped me understand or helped me remember just how important vacation Bible schools are and how important it is that we keep dealing with these children and, and planting the seeds of faith in them. One of them was, uh, and so, some of you might have a heart attack, and if you do, I, I just suggest you go back and read your Bible because um, it's pretty plain about how this operates. But one of them, we had dancing in the church. Yeah, yeah, we did, in the church. I don't mean like outside down the street or on the sidewalk. I mean right back yonder. Mm -hmm. right between those back pews we have several autistic children that come to this church and are a part of this church body and two of them in the back uh, the music you guys if, if you weren't here I can't explain it to you it's very up tempo fast paced the lyrics are very theologically sound but they relate to the kids if you drove by you probably heard it outside uh, it's pretty, pretty strong music but it's really, really good. And we had these two autistic children standing in the back, holding each other's hands, going in circles, but, but calling it dancing. And you're sitting there watching these two children who we don't have a clue what their life is going to be like. None of us have any clue of what it would be like to be 40 years old and be autistic, much less to be their age and be autistic. And to watch them in God's house, in this place, having their spirits lifted by the music that's playing, that's not booty music that you hear on the radio, that's glorifying all of the sex and everything else in the world, but is glorifying God and watching those two kids, every now and then him giving her a little twirl, every now and then her twirling herself, right back there, that's about the coolest thing in the world. I know God smiled. I know God smiled. And I know there's folks that in other churches that would doing that in the church. But the way I read the scripture, it, it, I don't think God's got a problem. And the second thing that happened was, uh, a, was a prayer time. And it was sort of a cool prayer time that the crew leaders, that's what we called our, our teachers, the leader of each little group. Our crew leaders, all, all of their kids, they were in these first pews. That's why I'm pointing at you guys. I'm not about to call you out. Uh, told the, the, the kids to gather around their crew leaders and pray. 
And everybody did what they were supposed to do, except for this one little group did it in a way that it was just one of our young moms was sitting right over here about fourth or fifth pew back with her girls, little class of little girls. And when, when we said go gather around her and pray, they just sort of glided over to her. It was the strangest thing. Everybody else is moving to get over. And these girls just sort of descended on this mom and they all bowed together as one little group and it was the prettiest, sweetest little picture I have ever seen in my life. And I know God was in heaven listening to those prayers going, this is cool. I like this. This is neat. And that's why we do this. That's why we put in all the work and the time because these little guys had invested in their lives this week. These adults and teenagers working with them and kept telling them over and over, God can provide for you. God can take care of you. God gives you comfort. God gives you healing. God gives you forgiveness. God has the power to love you forever. And that just keeps going over and over and over and over again. It was a very great VBS. And I do want to toss out a couple of things. I, I joke about Laura. But Laura has had a very difficult two months because camps and VBS is an awful lot of work. And yet she pulled it off with her typical organization. She did a dynamite job. Barry did his typical dynamite job leaving the, leading music. I even called him Ninja Barry because they got a picture of him. You know, he had to do all the motions that they have you do. And they had this one where he's doing this number. So I said, Ninja Barry. But they did a fabulous job in vacation Bible school this week. And I believe that First Baptist Church is particularly blessed by God to have two people that are so full of passion for what they do and for God's word to be spread in this church, we are very fortunate that God called them to this house. So thank you very much, very much. And of course, they weren't the only ones that worked. We had over 100 kids. We had over 100 volunteers. And one of the neat things about this Bible school was the fact that you normally have a curve, an attendance curve. Your first first meeting is here, your second's here, and then they start cur curving down. Ours went up every day. We had more people every day than we had the day before. And we had all these volunteers that gave of their time that came from work, that had, came from work with their eyes rolling around and around from a day at work, and then they've got to face a room full of people that are that tall. And you know that's hard. Our kitchen crew and all kinds of kitchen volunteers, lots of stuff going on. Thank you very much to all of these guys. It was in vacation Bible school when I was an elementary student that Miss Beth Neal planted a seed inside of me that made me start thinking about my salvation, about my relationship with Jesus Christ. Because of what Beth did in Bible school, God used that and worked on me and worked on me until one day I accepted Christ as my Savior, trusted him to be my Lord because Beth Neal, God used her to plant a seed. And you guys that worked in vacation Bible school may never, never know this side of heaven what you did this week, but I pray that one day somebody will come up to you and go, you are my vacation Bible school teacher. This is what you said, and Jesus saved my soul. That's why you're doing it, and that's cool stuff. Now, I'm not here to talk about vacation Bible school, all of the service, but everything fits together here. It was a very good week. We had these, we had a primary theme that we talked about all week called Conquering Challenges 
with God's mighty power. That's what we were teaching these kids. And each day had a Bible point that, that, that um, supported that theme. First Bible point was God has the power to provide. And for those of you who remember how wonderful last week's sermon was, you'll remember that that was the theme of the sermon, is God has the power to provide. Then we had God has the power to comfort, God has the power to heal, God has the power to forgive, and God is able to love us forever. And one of the things that the kids, those of you who are at Bible school now, I need a little interaction, all right? One of the things that the kids were supposed to do whenever you gave one of these Bible points, y'all remember? When I said God has the power to forgive, they shouted out what? Yeah, that was wimpy. They shouted out what? Oh, man. Those kids could do it. God has the power to love us forever. Hold on. And it was funny because Laura would be doing her part and she would say one of those little Bible things, uh, the Bible truths, and she wouldn't think about it, you know, because she's in, she's in the groove going and the kids would just, without thinking, hold on in the middle of this thing. And she'd, yes, and then go on. But that's our point this morning. It's a, it really is a very good theological principle. Hold on. It's what Hebrews 12, 1 through 3 is teaching us. Hold on, because life is not easy. Things happen to us. And you know, one of the things that, that there's, there's two phrases that, that bother me, that, that you really have to work in context to make them not bother me. One is let go and let God. Well, that's great. I understand, I understand what's behind it, but, but, but how does that work and what do I do? And that, nope, that one. And the other one when people say, well, you know, there's always somebody worse off than you. Well, you know, that's all fine, well, and good. But you know what? My pain is my pain. And I don't care. I may stump my toe, but it's the worst stump toe that's ever been happened in the history of time. And it hurts worse than anybody's stump toe ever hurt because it is my stumped toe. So we can't minimize people's pain. We all have hard times. We all go through times, and sometimes hard times aren't like a stump toe that's over in a day or two. Sometimes hard times last a long, long, long time. And what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to hold on. We're supposed to hold on. You may remember that we used the same scripture a few weeks ago when we celebrated the Lord's Supper. And our point then was, was the idea of remembrance. Look back on your life and ask, your, ask yourself the question, how has Jesus changed your life? And we really looked at that second verse real, real hard that day. How has Jesus changed your life? Now, the writer of the book of Hebrew makes a strong case uh, for a point that I learned in one of those survival shows on television. I think it was the one, I Shouldn't Be Alive, Anybody ever seen that? You know, something happened to somebody and, and they should have been killed, but for whatever reason they weren't killed, they shouldn't be alive, hence the name of the show. And in that show, <coughs> in that program, the point that they made was this. When people tend to survive tragedies when they think of somebody other than themselves. People tend to survive a tragedy when they don't think about how hard it is what I'm going through and I've got to live. They tend to survive the tragedy when they start thinking about my mama's at home. 
My, my wife is at home. My children's at home. They'll be without a daddy. I've got to live. I've got to find a way. I've got to get out of this. I've got to go. They're thinking outside of themselves. And that's where this scripture takes us. Is it tells us, listen, move outside of yourself. Hold on. But there's something for you to hold on to. Move outside of yourself. Starts with the word therefore. Therefore, because of everything that's come before that. You go back into chapter 11. Read all those great stories of faith there. Because of everything that's happened, therefore, he says, he's talked about people that had faith, so strong of a faith, they could hold on to Jesus through hard times, through times where they had to be the conqueror, where they had to lead people to conquer, in times where they were killed, where they were sawn in two, it says. All these horrible things happened to them. They were able to hold on. And he says, therefore, because of everything these people did, for these people who, who thought that having their heart stop beating was price enough to pay to experience the glory that Jesus Christ has promised to each and every one of us, because of what they've done, hold on. The writer of the Hebrews calls these folks a great cloud of witnesses. Now, you all remember from the other day we talked about this, the, the idea here is a, a foot race, and it's not two guys to get together in the backyard racing. It's the Olympics, or like the Olympics. And they're in a stadium. And in the stadium, you've got all these people that are surrounding them. That's the image he's using is this great cloud of witnesses. But it's not like stadiums like we think of. Stadiums we think, last night I watched Game 5 of the, uh, of the Stanley Cup Finals. I've gotten into hockey. I can't help myself. It's addictive. The Blackhawks won. They're ahead 3-2. to two. If they'll win on Monday night, we got the Stanley Cup. So that's sort of cool. And I know nobody in here probably even knows what I'm talking about. But it's cool. It's cool. But their stands are full of people. I mean, just packed. This is the playoffs. This is a big kahuna. There will be no more games after this one until next year. And they're all screaming, let's go Bolts. Because the Tampa Lightning, Tampa Lightning Bolts. Let's go, Bolts. They're all screaming, go, team, go. You can do it. You can do it. You can do it. That's not the image he's got here. The image that he's got here is of a stadium that's full of this cloud of witnesses that are silent. But by their presence, by the fact that they're there, you get the image as a runner that, you know what? They ran this race. I can too. Because they were people just like me. And because they could run the race and they could complete the race, I can complete this race too. It's like they are screaming silently to the people running the race, hold on. You can do it. Hold on. It's worth it. It's worth the battle. It's worth the pain. It's worth the indignity, the embarrassment. It's worth whatever it is that you're going through. Hold on. You can do this. And he tells us to put aside every weight and every sin which clings so closely. Now listen to this. Put these things aside, he says. Quit thinking about them. Well, pastor, you don't understand. I can't quit thinking about these things. Really? Scripture says that we can. It says that the spirit of the prophet is under the control of the prophet. We can control what we think about we certainly can people say I, I can't help myself yes you can 
And that's what he's telling us here. You absolutely can. How do you do this? How do you hold on? The first way that you hold on is you look to those people who have been where you are already and have held on to Christ and have made it through and use them as strength for you to carry on and do what you need to do. Look to the ones who have gone before, to the ones who have suffered greatly but with dignity and grace. Look to those people who kept their eyes focused, not on themselves but on Jesus. I've used this illustration before. When you go into somebody's room that's dying, you go into their hospital room or their nursing home room or wherever, they're, they are on the road. They're passing away. And you walk in and you're worried about what you're going to say and how you're going to give them comfort because how do you comfort somebody that's about to go meet Jesus? What do you say to them? And yet you walk out of the room feeling like you've been in church because these people started talking about you and about all this all these other things and they lift your spirits and you walk out wondering what in the world just happened I walked in there to give them comfort and I feel like I've been in church well how did they do that they weren't laying there thinking about their pain they weren't laying there thinking about their suffering they were looking beyond themselves to something else they were outside of themselves focused on Jesus holding on lifting our spirits I don't know if I can do that. Well, yes, you can. Because, see, God in his word right here says that you can. And he does not lie. And he says you can do it. His word tells you that you can do it. That you have the ability, fueled by his spirit, you have the ability to do what he is telling you to do. First thing he says is look at those that have gone before you. Look at people that have been in situations like you that have held on to Jesus and have survived this thing and made it to the other side. The second thing he says to hold on is consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Who is the him here? It's Jesus. Do you hear the message? He is, God is telling us to hold on. He's saying quit focusing on yourself. Turn your focus somewhere else. Turn your focus on those who have suffered like you've suffered before. Turn your eyes to Jesus who has suffered in every way just like we have. Has been tempted in every way just like we were tempted. And yet persevered and was the author and perfecter of our faith. Died, buried, resurrected so that we could be changed so that we could hold on. Jesus says in this, the, the Bible says in the scripture, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. If we were teaching vacation Bible school, we would translate that into two words. Hold on. Hold on. So that you don't grow weary or faint-hearted. Hold on. I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if I can do that. Try it. Try it. And then try it again. And then try it again. See what happens. See what he does. Keep your focus on him. Read about him. Pray about him. One of the things that we get all wrapped around is there's, there's got to be more to this faith that we have to do in order to know him. And, and there's got to be something deeper. When you, are, when you see that guy or that gal that takes your breath away, and you look at her and she's the one. And you just know that she is. What do you do? Well, you try to spend a little time with her, right? 
hang around her, talk to her. Maybe you eventually get to ask her out on a date. You go somewhere, you watch a movie, but the goal is not the movie. The goal is to talk about the movie when the movie's over and you learn about the person. Is there anything more than that? I mean, is it, is it totally necessary to hire a team of private detectives to go scour their background, to find out all about them and everything that possibly was? Do you need to go interview their mother, their father, their cousins, their aunts, their uncles? Do you do all of that stuff? Maybe you should take their social security number and run some kind of check on them. And with some people, maybe you should. But, uh, <clears throat> but by and large, is that how you... And then once you've done through all that stuff, then you start to, no, you spend time with them. And that's all you do. Spend time with Jesus. How do I do that? Well, you got a Bible full. And then you talk to people that are godly people that know Jesus. And you talk about him and you talk about what you're going through. And that's how you get to know him. And then you do something that we had in Bible school called God sightings that you look for God to work and you expect him to because he says he will and it's just that simple and then you fail and you ask him and you do it again and you may fail 50 times but every time you fail it'll be a little less because you're headed in the right direction because he is faithful he has the power to love us forever he doesn't let go he says I will help you just hold on hold on we had vacation Bible school this week we had the mission trip to gray we had about 30 people that showed up over 30 different people that showed up over the course of the three days on Monday we worked at the uh, uh, food distribution on the second Tuesday of every month we have a food distribution that happens right here under our portico on the fellowship hall side of things if you can be here especially from 10 to 12 if you're free on those days from 10 to 12 they could use your help during that time because we moved 6,000 pounds of onions one at a time do you know how many onions that is holy cow I don't know if I ever want to see another onion 6,000 pounds of onions we moved we moved enough heads of cabbage and I don't mean in a bag cabbage I mean in a box cabbage where you pick them up one at a time and give them to 150 or more people that drove through that's the kind of things we did and you have to you have to get the onions and the cabbage and put them in a bag and you have to get them ready there's a lot of work involved in all that stuff and we did that on Tuesday some of us went to the food pantry and helped get that organized Miss Sandra Hammock's in charge of that and she guided everybody in how to do all of that. And we went and visited some of our shut-ins and had communion with them at their homes or at the nursing home because they're shut-ins and they haven't had communion in a billion years. So we went and had communion with them. We wrote some letters to our service people. We did a number of things. But at the, at the food distribution, I met a guy who has the coolest name on the face of this planet. He's a volunteer. He's from England. He has a British accent, and his name is Mr. Good Enough. Isn't that the coolest name in the world? Yeah. Can Randy handle that? Oh, yeah. That, that's good enough. You know, it's just, it just has a ring to it. I really like the guy. And, of course, we got to talking about he's from England, and we got Ben's girlfriend's from England, and you can see where the, congregate, where the uh, conversation went. And she's from a place in England called Derbyshire. 
And when I mentioned, he asked where she was from, and I said, somewhere in Derbyshire, I couldn't remember the village. He said, there's, there's a story about a city called, a village called Eam. It's spelled E-Y-A-M. Look it up on the internet when you get home and read the whole story. E-Y-A-M. In 16, get my date right, in 1665, a tailor who lived in the village of Eam received a shipment of cloth from London, England. That shipment of cloth was a little bit damp. And back in 1665, they didn't have a dryer. So he hung the cloth up in front of the fire in order to dry. Well, in London, England in 1665, the plague, the bubonic plague was raging through, through London. And when he put that cloth in front of the fire to dry because it was damp, that fire woke those ticks up that were living in that cloth. Yeah. And you know that's what, from your studies in school, you understand that that's what spread the plague. They didn't know that back then. But that's what spread the plague. And it woke the tick up, the ticks up. The ticks hopped off the cloth, jumped on the ground, started looking for a mouse or a rat to live on or a human if there was one nearby. And Mr. Vickers was there. He got bit by the tick. And within four or five days, he died. And everybody saw what happened to him. The plague has a mortality rate, if untreated, of, of 40 to 60 percent. That means for every 10 people that catch the plague, at least four will die, up to six will die of every 10 people that catch the plague. And the plague is an ugly way to go. I mean, it is an ugly, go read about it. It's an ugly way to die. So here are the people in this village, and he dies of the plague. They decide to have a church service. The only thing is, is you don't want to go into a church building, right? I mean, you don't know what causes this stuff, and I may be sitting beside you, and you've got the plague, and now I've got the plague. So they have a natural amphitheater outside of town, sort of like the Sermon on the Mount kind of thing. Everybody goes out to this natural amphitheater. Every little family sits far enough away from every other family, close enough that we can say, hey, but far enough away that I can't get sick if you've got it. And in the, the rector of their church's name was Reverend Monpesson, Monpresson, Monpresson. And he stands up in front of the congregation and he says, folks, here's what I think we ought to do. I think we should all stay right here. I think every last one of us should stay right here in the village of Eam, not go, not go outside of the city, not go to any other town, not try to escape. I mean, what's your first thing you're going to do? If your family is in jeopardy and you can't fight it, the first thing you're going to do is try to run from it. And he knew that if they went running from it, they were going to spread the plague around every community around them, and all of these people would die. And he said, let's just hold still, guys, right here. And the congregation of the church sat there and said, you're right. That's what we're going to do. For 14 months, people in the village of Eam died of the plague. 260 people in that little village ended up dying of the plague. 260 people that a number of them probably wouldn't have died if they had run. But they didn't run, they stayed. And the communities around them heard what was going on 
and admired them so much for it that they brought food and, and supplies and left them on the outskirts of town <clears throat> excuse me, so that the people in town would go get those supplies. Sometimes they would give payment, and the way they gave payment was they either washed the money in vinegar, which killed whatever it was that caused the disease that killed the, killed the fleas, or they submersed the money in this uh, well that they had that also killed the fleas. They didn't know it was the fleas, but they knew it would, it would cleanse or disinfect the money. And then some people just brought food and said, we don't want any money because of what you're doing. We're grateful. We're grateful. Finally, after 14 months, nobody else died of the plague, and it was over in that city. Why did they do that? Well, they were Christians. And they knew the scripture that says, Greater love hath no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And they knew the people in the other villages, and I can't kill them, so I'm going to stay here. For 14 months, a boyfriend and girlfriend went to this amphitheater, and they would shout from one side of the amphitheater to the other because it was a boyfriend and a girlfriend until one day she didn't show up to shout because she got the plague and she died. 14 months. Nobody ran. Nobody escaped. Nobody snuck off at night with their family. Why did they do that? Because instead of thinking of themselves, <clears throat> instead of thinking of themselves, they thought of Jesus, the author and perfecter of their faith, who suffered and died so that he might live again, so that they might live again, so that therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. <clears throat> and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility as himself, against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted, 14 months of torment, they did not grow weary, they did not get faint-hearted. You know they were tempted to despair. You know they were tempted to be depressed. They were tempted to run, but they didn't. When the temptation threatened them, they told each other, hold on. <clears throat> and the more I listen to you guys, the more I'm around you guys, the more I find out that there are hidden hurts in your life that you don't share with a whole lot of folks. And to you this morning, I'm telling you, hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Take strength in those who have come before you. Make your mind up that you're going to be one of those examples one day that when people look and need a specific kind of hope that they can endure, that they will be able to look at you and say, you know what, they did it, I can do it too. Hold on. Hold on to be that example. Look to Christ and let him draw you to himself and make you strong. Hold on. You can't do it by yourself. 
but you are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. And you are saved by a Savior who endured it all and came out victorious on the other side. He says, hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Because one day you won't have to hold on anymore. You'll survive it. You'll win the battle. You'll be more than a conqueror. And you'll experience the glory that the Lord Jesus Christ has prepared for you from the foundation of the world. You will stand in the presence of the Almighty. And on that day, you're not going to go, I wonder what God's like. On that day, you're going to fall on your face going, Oh, my word. How glorious is our Lord. Now, let me say this one last thing. If you have not trusted Christ to be your Savior... You hadn't got much to hold on to. You've got yourself. Sometimes you can do a pretty good job hanging on all by yourself. But Christ is our power. He is the source we plug into. He has done it already. He has shown us the way. And he can give us the power. He says that he will. I implore you this morning to stop and think and trust Christ as your Savior. And for everybody else, you got to believe. Hold on. Hold on. You will be victorious. Hold on. And Father, we thank you this morning for the message to hold on. I thank you, Lord, that we taught that in Bible school and maybe some of these kids... <clears throat> Lord, a lot of these kids are going through hard times. We, we as adults talk about how resilient kids are. Sometimes we as adults can be pretty ridiculous because kids hurt and it's their hurt and it hurts just as bad as our hurts do. And they don't just get over stuff. I pray, Father, thank you so much for the message to tell them to hold on to you. And Father, I pray for us that we'll, we'll hold on. That no matter the pain, the heartache, the hardship that we're going through right now, we'll hold on. Because you've got a hold of us. And if we'll look to you, you'll take us where we need to go. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.